text of a speech given by the King of England spread through this town, spread through Boston like wildfire and out into the countryside because the king had said that the Americans are in rebellion and that their leaders are traitors and that we are going to crush that rebellion. Welcome to the Cambridge Forum with David McCullough discussing 1776. I'm Bill Fowler, the director of the Massachusetts Historical Society. Is there a literate citizen in our republic who does not know David McCullough? He's been into your living room via the American experience and the Civil War. He has received two Pulitzer Prizes with Truman and John Adams, and has twice received the National Book Award for Path Between the Seas and Mornings on Horseback. He has received 31 honorary degrees, addressed a joint session of the United States Congress, and spoken at the White House. His newest book, 1776, tells the story of the American Revolution as experienced by George Washington and the men who marched with him, as well as loyalists and Hessian mercenaries, politicians, preachers, traders, and spies, men and women of all kinds caught in the path of war. And here this evening to bring that year alive for all of us, David McCullough. Thank you. One of the hardest things it seems to me to convey in teaching history or writing history, and one of the most important to convey, is that nothing ever had to happen the way it happened. We're so often presented history uh, as this following, this following that, and we're meant to get that straight because it will be on the test on Wednesday, and we begin to think after a good many years of that process that that had to be that way. And it never did. Events of all kinds could have gone off in any number of different directions anywhere along the line, just as in our own lives. 1776 was the most important year of the most important conflict in our history, the Revolutionary War. Without the Revolutionary War, there would be no United States of America. The Revolutionary War, furthermore, was the longest war in our history except for Vietnam, eight and a half years. And it was the bloodiest war in our history except for the Civil War. 25,000 Americans lost their lives. Now that doesn't seem like very much by our terms, but by their terms, it was catastrophic. 1% of the population, 2,500,000 people in all of the 13 colonies. Were we fighting such a war today, we would lose over 3 million people to give you some idea of what they sacrificed. And of course, the dead are not the only sacrifice, nor were the soldiers who marched with Washington the only people who suffered. But suffer they did, nor did it look very encouraging, ever. There was a night in the winter of 1776, early in 1776, just up the way here on Brattle Street at what we call the Longfellow House, which was Washington's headquarters, and ought to be so understood as to be that 
as well as the Longfellow House, when Washington was tossing and turning at night, unable to sleep, as he recorded in a letter. The reflection upon my situation and that of this army produces many an uneasy hour when all around me are wrapped in sleep. Few people know the predicament we are in. So it isn't just that we don't know today what they suffered then, what they went through then, how bleak, how dark, how, how in many ways hopeless it appeared, but he's saying that few people then knew. Now who were they? Well, we have a pretty good idea who George Washington was. But in my view, we need to know more. He's not the marble man. He's not unapproachable. He's a leader. He isn't, in, he isn't an intellectual like John Adams or Jefferson. He isn't a great strategist or tactician like Napoleon. He isn't a passionate, persuasive speaker like Patrick Henry. He's a leader. He has absolute integrity. He has phenomenal courage, which is the first thing required in a leader because everything else depends on that. And it's both physical and moral courage. He is steadfast. He will not quit. And he never loses sight of what the war is about. And he conveys this courage and dedication to the glorious cause of America, as they called it, in such a way that others feel deeply his feelings and will follow him through hell. Now, not all of them did, by any means. Not all of them were heroes. They deserted in droves by the hundreds. Many, when their enlistments were up, marched right off to home as fast as they could go, by the thousands, both from here and later on in December when Washington was retreating across New Jersey and couldn't spare a man, let alone 2,000 of his men who just walked away with no shame whatsoever when they were most desperately needed. And many went over to the enemy. We mustn't forget that. Hundreds of them went over to the enemy right here, just as many of the enemy came over to our side. There was a lot of back and forthing often depending whether there was food enough to keep them going or clothes enough to keep them warm. British sentries froze to death here around Boston in that winter. The only losses, the only American fatalities on the, during the attack at Trenton were two men on the nine-mile march after they had crossed the Delaware, on the nine-mile march down to Trenton to, to, to hit the hit Trenton the next morning, who, who died on the march because they froze to death. And yes, they did, many of them have no shoes, and yes, they did leave bloody footprints in the snow. All true. But George Washington was also a man. He bore a burden of gloom and doom such as I don't know of any man carrying in a, such a position of tremendous responsibility. This is also true of Henry Knox. Henry Knox was a Boston bookseller, a great, big, fat, gregarious young man that everybody liked and who was impossible to ignore. He had the idea to go to Ticonderoga and bring back the guns 
left there after Ethan Allen and his Green Mountain boys had captured the fort in May of, the early of, of 1775. The guns were still there, but fight Fort Ticonderoga was over 300 miles away in upstate New York, and he proposed to do this in the midst of winter, and he did it. Now, what's so interesting is that Henry Knox was 25 years old. Henry Knox knew no more about the military or artillery than what he'd read in books. Nor did Nathaniel Green from Rhode Island, who was all of 33 when they made him a general, knew no more about the military or being in the army or fighting a war than what he'd read in books. But you see, that was an age when people believed that reading books wasn't a bad way to learn things. <laughs> That's the spirit of the Enlightenment, the faith of the Enlightenment, vividly personified by these two men who, like Washington, had no formal schooling beyond about fifth grade, but who never stopped reading. And of course, it was a young man's war, a young woman's war, young cause. Washington was 43 when he took command here in Cambridge. We see the old fellow in his white powdered hair and the awkward teeth, the founding father, the, the elder statesman. He wasn't that yet, not for a very long time to come. And he was the oldest of them. Jefferson was 33 when he wrote the Declaration of Independence, 33 years old. Benjamin Rush, who in many ways is one of the most interesting of them all, the famous physician of that time who was the first to urge that people with mental illness be treated humanely. Benjamin Rush was all of 30 years old when he signed the Declaration of Independence. They're young, they're inexperienced. They've never fought a revolution. No people had ever successfully revolted against the mother country. This country had no army, it had no navy, it had no money, and it had no prior experience. There was no Che Guevara who'd done it before somewhere else. And they'd never founded a country. And they're all coming out of this tiny population of 2,500,000 people, 500,000 of whom, as you might recall, were held in bondage as slaves, black men, women, and children. And of course, there is the glaring incongruity that many of them were themselves slave masters, including George Washington. They postponed that issue, as they would postpone that issue again with the Constitution. All men are created equal. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. To what extent did the Declaration of Independence inspire these soldiers? Very hard to know for certain. It certainly, it certainly was a powerful morale moment when Washington ordered that the Declaration of Independence be read aloud to everybody, all of the army in New York, when the document itself reached New York in its full text. And when that happened, I just tell you that what happened was that Knox said, now, how we play our parts will affect generations and generations to come. That's an extremely important observation because Knox is saying how we play our parts and this idea that they are cast in roles unlike anybody has ever been cast before 
in one of the great dramatic turning points in history permeates all that they say. Washington, Adams, Knox, Green, all of them. Except when you get down in the ranks. You don't read that much. There, isn't no, there is no mention that I know of in the memoir of Joseph Plum Martin, a 16-year-old army volunteer, soldier, foot soldier, who kept a wonder, wrote a wonderful memoir later. There's no mention of it in the diaries of Jabez Fitch, another Connecticut farmer with eight children. No mention of the Declaration of Independence that I know of in the papers of my favorite Joseph Hodgkins, who was a cobbler from Ipswich. They may have indeed been fighting for the Declaration of Independence and its noble ideals, but they don't talk about it much. They talk about winning. They talk about surviving till the next day. They talk about doing their part, and they talk again and again about the glorious cause of America. Now keep in mind that when the soldiers who went out to face the British redcoats at Lexington and Concord leveled their muskets on the enemy, they were not fighting for independence, nor were they doing so at Bunker Hill. They were fighting in their view, in their hearts and minds, for their rights as freeborn Englishmen. It is only in 1776 when this idea of independence takes hold, and it's only after a text of a speech given by the King of England before Parliament in October arrives here in Boston, in Cambridge, on the very first day of the new year, January 1, 1776. And word of that text of that speech spread through this town, spread through Boston like wildfire, and out into the countryside because the king had said that the Americans are in rebellion and that their leaders are traitors and that we are going to crush that rebellion. In other words, it wasn't just going to be a brief family squabble. Washington wrote his wife Martha that he would be home by Christmas. That thought all passed by the way on the first day of January 1776. When one finishes reading about this year. When you live inside the diaries and letters of the people who were there, who saw it, who fought it, who survived it, you come away with several very powerful feelings that I think, for me at least, will stay with me for the rest of my life. One is that they, they did everything for us because the words of the Declaration of Independence would have been just that, words on paper, had it not been for them. That when we celebrate the 4th of July, we shouldn't just be celebrating those noble ideals. That's important for sure. We shouldn't just be imagining the 1776 of the Broadway show. All those, those eminent leaders in their magnificent 18th century attire, parading around on stage like somebody in a costume pageant. That was part of it, and a very important part. But there are these other people, mostly long forgotten, but by no means have their, have their traces been eliminated. They are there. We can read what happened. We can hear their voices in their own words. If our satisfaction with ourselves, if our abundance and our amplitude of opportunities are so 
hypnotizing to us that we forget about those people and we take what we have for granted, what kind of a country are we? We profess we love our country. What would, what would somebody who professes to love another man or another woman or, or their, your father or your mother, but knows nothing about them, what kind of love would that be? We are a very interesting country. And the shame of it is that so few people know much about it. Now, I don't think we ought to read history and read about the Revolutionary War because it's necessarily going to make us more grateful for what we have, it will, or that it'll make us a better citizen, it will, or that it will help us to understand human nature far better than almost anything else one could study, and it will, but also as a source of pleasure. You couldn't invent a novel that would have such incredible events that take place as in this year, 1776. You read what happened and you say, that just doesn't happen in real life, but it did. When time and again, the weather, literally which way the wind was blowing, would determine the outcome, not just of one battle or one engagement, but of the war. If the wind had been in a different direction the night of August 29th, 1776, on the East River in New York, I think it would have been all over because it would have taken only the British fleet to come up into the East River and seal off any possible escape by Washington and the Army from Brooklyn Heights. They would have had them right in the bag, exactly the same way we had the British in the bag at Yorktown when the French fleet arrived at exactly the right time to seal off any retreat there, one of the great ironies of the war. There's one point when the French, when the, the uh, uh, Continental Army is retreating across New Jersey, when all they have left are 3,000 men, probably a fourth of whom are sick. Most of them have, have no winter clothing. They've not done nothing but lose and lose and lose again for months. 3,000 men and the whole future of the country and all that the Declaration embodied was riding on those people. So what Washington did when all hope was lost is what we often have to do when all hope is lost. He attacked. He, he came across the Delaware, struck at Trenton, and history changed because we had beaten them. It wasn't a big battle. It wasn't a grand European-style conflict, but it changed history because it changed what was in people's hearts, their morale, their attitude. And then he struck a few days later in the first week of 1777 at Princeton and won again. I've been at this now for 40 years, and I've loved the work I've done on every book I've written. But I have never enjoyed so much what I've been doing as working in the 18th century. There's something about those people from whom we can learn more than we have any idea. And how fortunate we are that they did what they did. That's my talk.
This is the Cambridge Forum with David McCullough speaking about his book, 1776. Now the floor is yours, and Mr. McCullough is willing to take some questions. In your remarks, you've stressed integrity of the leadership as one of the prime requisites. I'm sure as you write and delve into the history that you make comparisons between yesterday and today. I wonder if you'd share them with us. I think that George Washington was the greatest president in our history because he was a unifying figure both through the war and uh, as president. He was exactly the right man for his times. And uh, I think that we, among the miracles of 1776, among the miracles that made possible our whole way of life, is the fact that there, at the very beginning, we had a man of that kind. Now, exceptional presidents are, are the exception. And uh, we shouldn't expect, nor, nor has history uh, um, illustrated, that uh, uh, great presidents come along all the time. They don't. Sometimes the times create them, sometimes uh, it's otherwise. I think what comes through more from the period of the revolution and the creation of the country is not that they were ideal, not that they were superhuman or gods. They weren't, they were human beings. And they each had flaws, weaknesses, failings. They, they all made mistakes. Washington in 1776 made some horrendous mistakes almost finished this off, but that they never quit. They never quit trying to do their best. And their, their willingness to serve the country is the real example they set. That's what we have to get back into American life. I think our advantage is not only that they weren't perfect, but what they did wasn't perfect. We are work in progress. The United States of America is work in progress. It's, it's the continuing experiment. We are left with the responsibility to try and make it work even better. More justice, more equality, more fairness, and so forth. And that's our advantage. If it were all handed to us on the platter, uh, that wouldn't be very good for anybody. Yes, ma'am. I'm interested to hear your thoughts on who are some um, famous female figures from history who haven't been written about much, and uh, do you have any plans to write about them? Thank you. <laughs> There are at least 12 women in the book I have written who figure very importantly. Now that doesn't mean that they occupy uh, many pages, though some do. Catherine Green, Nathaniel Green's wife, extremely interesting. Martha Washington, who came here to Cambridge and stayed in the Longfellow House. That's another ghost you might find at the Longfellow House. Abigail Adams, I think Abigail Adams is one of the greatest Americans who ever lived. Uh, and certainly one of the greatest writers who ever lived. Uh, Mercy Warren, one of the first historians we ever produced and who wrote one of the first histories of the Revolutionary War. Uh, there was Dorcas Griffith, uh, who, was, uh, who ran a low grog shop uh, in Boston, who was known as John Hancock's discarded mistress. Mary Lindley Murray, supposedly, it's a lovely story, she supposedly offered tea to the British generals when they were chasing Washington and stalled them long enough for Washington to get away. Um, she probably did offer them tea, but it wasn't her um, feminine wiles which uh, slowed them down. They didn't have any attention to hurrying anyway. Molly Corbin, Molly Corbin 
was from Pennsylvania and she went to war with her husband as some women did and she was beside him when he was firing the cannon a cannon at Fort Washington during the siege of Fort Washington in New York and when he was hit and killed she took over and manned the cannon until she was hit nearly lost her arm uh, but survived so yes there are many women who were involved and there are many of them that I uh, admire and, and enormously and I wish we knew more about them. The problem is that very few, comparatively few women, um, as in comparison to the men, uh, wrote the letters and diaries that we're dependent on. And that's what makes Abigail Adams such a remarkable figure because if she'd done nothing else but write the letters she wrote, she, had, she served her country in a grand fashion. Yes, sir. Um, what if the winds had been in the British favor on August 29th and George Washington had been captured? What would have happened? Well, if George Washington had been captured, and he was nearly captured several times, uh, he, he lost his self-control at Kipps Bay. He, he had saw hundreds of his men running like rabbits, cowards in his view, and he just lost it. He started using his whip on people. He pulled his pistol on some of the officers. He rode very close up to the enemy lines. Uh, he could have been shot. He could have been uh, captured. It was only when two of his aides were able to grab a hold of the bridle of the, of the horse and pull him literally pull him off the battlefield. If he had been captured then, if he had been captured at Brooklyn, I think the war would have been over. I think he would have been taken to London and put on trial. And that would have been something. Uh, whether he would have been hanged is a very debatable question because if they wanted truly to have us re-enter into the, to the family, so to speak, and be, return as part of the British Empire, I don't think they could ever have hanged him. And incidentally, he was picked as the general, not because he was a great military man. He was picked as a general by his fellow members of the Continental Congress because they knew him as a man. They knew him as a fellow politician. And as a politician, he never, ever forgot who was boss. Congress was boss. We've been blessed with our political generals, our George Marshalls and our Dwight Eisenhowers, Colin Powells. That's a the kind of general democracy should produce. Anyway, when the war was over, he relinquished his power, gave it back to Congress. And there's a marvelous painting by Trumbull of that scene hanging in the rotunda in Washington at the Capitol. Maybe many of you have seen it. Well, when Benjamin West, who was an American painter who had become the court painter in London, told George III after the war was over that Washington might do this, George III said, if he does that, he will be the greatest man in the world. So there was an underlying respect for Washington that makes me believe they never would have hanged him. They would have tried him, and they might have hanged a couple of others. They might have hanged Adams, for example. <laughs> <laughs> and he, there was a list. It wasn't very long, and Adams was one of them. Yes, ma'am. My name is Melissa. I'm a textbook editor at a publishing company, and it's really an honor to be here today and meet you. Um, I'm working on a series of biographies and um, of um, people in America's past um, right now, and just wondering what the biggest challenge you've come across in your career as a writer and um, how you've gone through it. Well, I'm very glad you're working on a series of biographies. There's a great need for biographies for young people. I think the greatest uh, challenge is to make it as interesting as it really was. You don't have to trick it up. You don't have to use uh, little ways of making it interesting. Just say what happened accurately and with a feeling uh, for the humanity involved. 
C.S. Forster, in his book on the art of fiction, gave an example of the difference between a sequence of events and a story. In a sequence of events, if I say to you, the king died and the queen died, that's a sequence of events. If I say the king died and the queen died of grief, that's a story. So don't just write with a head, write with a heart too. And good luck, yeah. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a program of Cambridge Forum, co-sponsored by the Harvard Bookstore, the First Parish in Cambridge, and the Friends of Cambridge Forum. For more information about this radio program, entitled 1776, featuring David McCullough, or about our ongoing radio series, visit us on the web, cambridgeforum.org. In Harvard Square, I'm Bill Fowler. Thank you for joining us.